0: back.
1: Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel, and you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Uh, today, I'm joined in the studio, very luckily, by two ladies, lovely ladies. Um, Valerie Lakin is here. She's currently on tour with her debut novel, Dream House, and also Amanda Yule, the execu- executive director of 826 Michigan. Welcome.
2: Thank, thank you.
1: Thank you. It's great to see you guys here um, on this sort of gray gray day here in Ann Arbor. Um, You brighten it up.
2: It's a good day to be (laughs) inside listening to the radio. It is, isn't it? (laughs) It's
1: quite cozy down here in the basement level of things. nice. (laughs) (laughs) And little talking heads and um, synthesizers. It's never a bad thing. Um, So to start things off, uh, I'm going to read Valerie Lakin's from the back of her book, Dream House. Valerie Lakin received her MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including Plowshares, the Chicago Tribune, Tribune, and the Antioch Review. And she has received a Pushcart Prize, the Missouri Review Editor's Prize, and two Hopwood Awards. She teaches in the creative writing program at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. So welcome home, Valerie.
3: Thank you. It's great to be back in Ann Arbor,
1: and and now and people must be thinking now why Amanda, Amanda why are you here? I'm here? <laughs> yes. So can you tell us? Tell of us course. all, <laughs> and tell us a little bit about Eight Two Six Michigan, if sure. you don't mind.
2: Sure. Um, so Eight Two Six Michigan is a writing and tutoring center for kids, and we serve about two thousand kids a year with a whole range of programs um, based on our belief that writing is important for every single child, um, and that goes for kids who are really struggling to write. Um, who say things to us like they hate writing and writing is hard, and for students who love writing and they maybe don't get enough opportunity to do to do that writing in school. So we know that writing is important for everyone. One-on-one attention is a huge part of how that writing and how that learning happens, um, and that everything we do is free. So we do totally free programs with volunteers.
1: Oh, that's that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So all people who care and love writing and reading. And, exactly. and, and you have a robot shop, don't you? We a storefront do. with robots? Is- we
2: do. That's one of the crazy ways that we we raise money for our free programs, so we have Liberty Street Robot Supply and Repair, which is just um, down the road from WCBN here, and we re- actually raise about ten percent of our operating budget on robot supplies and sales. So that works out pretty well. And everything else, uh, all the other money that we bring in is is related to grants or donations or fundraising events. So we have a big one of those coming up, as you know, tomorrow. Tomorrow, yes, Thursday evening at the Michigan Theater. Exactly. Thursday evening, uh, May 14th, we have a pre-release screening of the film, Away We Go, which was co-written by Dave Eggers and his wife, Venda Levita. And uh, Dave Eggers is actually the person who founded 826 Valencia, which is the, the was the very first writing center that has the same beliefs that we do. And, and that's they, in San Francisco, right? That's right. Pirates, is it, there? They have a out pirate there? store. Yep. They have a pirate <laughs> store. And there, so there are seven 826 writing centers in the country. And we all have a quirky storefront, and we all do the same kind of work with, with young people.
1: Was Michigan the last one to add into the fold? Do you know, Amanda? Actually,
2: no. no. Boston was more Boston. recent than okay. than we were. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And, uh,
1: And I bet you're ramping up for summer.
2: We are. We do so many programs in the summer. People often think we're less busy, but actually because students are out of school, it's the perfect time to reach them and make sure that they're not losing that love of learning and literacy and writing in the summer. So we do more. That's great. Yeah, that's great. My, my neighbor Pike,
1: he just, um, he came back from being at eight, two, six the other week and was telling me about the writing exercise. So it's really, oh, that's lovely. Great thing. Yeah, good. (laughs) Um, Okay, so there's another big reason why Amanda's here, and it's very exciting, because we're going to do a giveaway of tickets. Well, Amanda is. Amanda so (laughs) kindly brought three pairs of tickets. To the uh, film, tomorrow night. To see Away We Go, tomorrow night. And so the first three callers at 734-763-3500... We'll take the first three callers, and you will be the lucky winners of seeing the movie and hearing Dave Eggers talk as well, right? Exactly. We'll
2: give a, a Q&A at the end. He will be here for the film. And then afterwards, uh, the film critic from the Metro Times, Jeff Myers, is going to sort of moderate an audience Q&A with Dave Eggers. So we'll sort of get the behind the scenes on how uh, the movie was written and, you know, other questions for him.
1: So, oh, that's great. And he's, really he's always a good good time. Maybe Absolutely. A, a, a Absolutely. talker. Yeah. Um, and so, those tickets. If you're one of the lucky winners, they'll be held for you and at your by your name at will call. Exactly. So, uh, okay. call us. Call now, and you'll talk to Alex Bell Hodge, the phenomenal engineer, All three thirty five hundred. All right. Well, Amanda, right. thanks for being here. Thanks so here. much for having me, and thanks for have... running eight two six Michigan. Absolutely.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. So now shifting. To our writer du jour, <laughs> Valerie Lakin. Valerie, you just drove in
3: from did. Wis- Wisconsin, didn't you? I did. I live in Milwaukee now. I lived for uh, 11 years in Ann Arbor, and the book is set in Ann Arbor, so it's really fun to come back here and be able to, to talk about the book in in what feels like my hometown. Yes. I, I was reading
1: on your website, ValerieLakin.com, um, that... Uh, that it took seven years with this book. Is that is that true? Sadly, it is
3: true. I wish that I could say that I'd written it more quickly. And to be honest, there were probably about three or four years of very intense work in the middle there. But it really, I started the book um, in 2000 or 2001 um, while I was finishing graduate school here and then uh, worked on it more or less for, for five or six years and then about a year of revision. So I think in the end, it adds up to about seven years.
1: And and with that,
3: uh with
1: the process of that, um, Valerie, um, was that a a chunk of that time? Was it was it researching as well? Um because well let's see. There's there's some ways stories happen, right? Like uh like you you find the story or the story finds you in some way. Um, is there a backstory on Dream House?
3: Yeah, unfortunately there is a backstory. I don't know if you knew this or not, but um The the story is set in downtown Ann Arbor in on the old west side actually just the very near part of the old west side, Um, and it has to do with a with a a couple who buy a historic fixer upper that's in really bad shape and they have these you know plans to not just sort of rekindle their their troubled. A flagging marriage, but you know to 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 reconstruct this home and make it into a sort of you know a beautiful place and a good investment and about two weeks after they move in, um, a neighbor comes across the street and tells them uh, the history of the house, which is that a murder occurred there, and that is the kernel of truth in the book and that 's a story that came to me <laughs> immediately to me when my neighbors came across the street and told us that a murder had occurred in our home. Um, which was not good news. I can't say it was good news. <laughs>
1: yeah. So these are. This is a time when the story found you in a way. Were you looking for a project at that time, Valerie, or was it that um, this idea just wouldn't
3: let go of you? That's a good question. I'm at the time I was writing. I was writing short fiction, um, and I was. You know, wouldn't we all like to write a novel at some point, but I never really felt that I had a story big enough for that, and I was really intimidated by the prospect of writing a novel. Um... And, because
1: what did yeah. that mean? Like when you were, because you were writing, because uh, your short stories have appeared in, in Ploughshares and in well, I was listing them off mm-hmm. in your biography and and they're you know, I've I've looked at some of them on your website as well mm-hmm. and, and they're great. So you've you built this collection of short stories dealing with disability
3: yeah, as well. That's right, and um, but, and that will come out in another about a year and a half. It's called Separate Kingdoms. It'll come out from Harper Perennial in about. We don't have a, a publication date, but it is under contract to come out in about a year and a half.
1: Did they? Did they ask you for a novel first? Is that why Dreamhouse came out first if you already, or was this collection, were you still finishing the short
3: story collection as well? I, uh, when I sold the contract, the story collection was mostly done and the novel was oh. only about a third of the way done, And um, but they decided that they wanted to publish the novel first. I think maybe just out of business concerns, story, story collections have a hard time selling and I think they had some strategy for it. I don't, some some crazy strategy in mind that I hope pans out for them, but I have no idea. I don't really follow the business side of and it very well. And a fleet of hot air balloons <laughs> exactly. for the launch. <laughs> exactly. So you know, so I didn't go looking for this story. You know, it, it's just something that sort of fell into my lap. And I, uh, you know, when we heard the news that this murder had occurred in our home, we were the the worst part of, of the news was that our neighbor who told it to us didn't know the facts. He just said, "Oh, I don't know when it happened or how or who it was," and so we had to go back home with this this vague knowledge that, okay, there was a murder that happened here somewhere. We don't know how or under what conditions or how long ago. And so in every kind of cracked piece of plaster, we were imagining bullet holes and the the closet floor was inexplicably painted red, which, you know, just didn't help us sleep at night. Or
1: why was there paneling on the wall? (laughs)
3: Exactly. And so, you know, we spent the first month or two just kind of playing this real-life game of Clue, you know, just sort of imagining, you know, did it happen in the foyer with an axe or in the garage with a chainsaw? You know, we just didn't know. And it was excruciating. And um, um, and and um, I, you know, I have to say it bothered me a little less than it bothered my husband, but it did. It bothered us both, and we were ashamed of it. We didn't tell people at first, and we just didn't know what to do with this news. And I think that's...
1: Well, it was such an odd delivery as yeah, well.
3: Yeah. I mean, it was really... It's almost
1: like he wanted to unsettle you.
3: I know. I've often wondered about his motives in that. I mean, and then what was interesting was that a month or so later, another neighbor stopped by and this very nice older woman who said that she had been a mail carrier for many years in our neighborhood. And she said, oh, I know the history of every house. And I sort of hesitated and I said, well, then do you know the history of our house? And she she kind of looked me up and down. It was a completely different sort of exchange. She kind of scanned my face to see if I really knew what I was asking and, and if I really wanted this news. And I sort of, you know, indicated that I had a – you know, that I had a, a – an inkling of what had happened. And, and she said, well, yeah, you know, there was there was a, a shooting here. It was very unfortunate. And she told me the circumstances of the of the crime. And it turns out that it was a domestic homicide. And, um, you know, I think that domestic homicides are really different from most other kinds of murders, I mean, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, the most important was that it wasn't just some random intruder. Um, and I think domestic homicides are really emotionally and morally complex. You know, I think nobody could feel 100% right or wrong in those situations because they involve someone you love. So even if that person did something horrible, you loved them before that moment, so you're not going to feel the same way about them that you would toward a random killer who walks into your house. So um, you know, so hearing the news that way really changed um, my sense of the house and, and made me really curious about this family and really curious about this person who had committed this crime. And I was really, it was a great mystery for me to try to figure out what would compel somebody to do that a mystery. Mm -hmm.
1: Let's take a short break, Valerie, and we'll come back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Valerie Lakin, her debut novel, Dream House. We'll be back.
4: And the city's at the break of dawn Well, I guess the best that I can do now Is pretend that I've done nothing wrong And dream about a train That's gonna take me back where I belong Well, now the ocean speaks and spits And I can hear it from the inner state Screaming at my brother on his cell phone, he is far away. i nothing in the past future ever will feel like today.
1: Parking... Wake up, everyone. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Valerie Lakin and her debut novel, Dream House. Um, so Valerie, um, we've got to the point where you've you've discovered this this mystery and and so then you decide to write about it um so what what was your process with the writing of this because you you had facts to work from um but this isn't this is obviously fiction um so how did you how did you balance that aspect of, like, the desire to research and to know what really happened. And then how did you know when to, um, either pull back and let the imagination steer where the story was going to go?
3: I, um or is that just it? Maybe. Not at all. No, it's a great question. I should have a ready, set answer. No, um. no, it's better. I,
1: no, I don't do that. And I'm not doing my job right. Maybe you have ready, set answers for everything.
3: I, you know, I think that I, um, I started off with this just curiosity about this family and this, this crime that had happened in their home and what it would feel like to be, uh, a member of a family in in which a domestic you know homicide had happened, and what would compel a young man to this eighteen year old boy to commit this this murder uh, and then he he promptly um turned himself in he walked down to the corner um shop and you know put the gun on the counter and said, "Call the police, please." I always picture Washtenaw dairy at that moment it, you are exactly right, so those of you who live or know live around or know the Washtenaw dairy you um you're right there near the scene of the crime and near the scene of my novel um and uh so i i just I, I i think there was just the human part of me of living in this house and wanting to understand what had happened in my house and and wanting to i think come to terms with it and reconcile um Myself with the fact that I was living in this house that that it had suddenly scared me a lot and made me feel ashamed, and and then to reconcile it with the fact that well some other family had lived here and it had been home to them and they had surely loved this house the way that anybody loves their home, and um, you know I think that a lot of times when we buy older homes we don't want to think about what has happened there before we move in and you know realtors always tell you take down your personal photos and things like that when you're trying to sell your house because families want to imagine that that nobody's really. Lived there before but that's just not the case. And it seems also places um absorb energy yeah. as well
1: cuz i mean i think so many things we can't possibly understand in our existence right and and that might be one of them that there's energy within places.
3: Yeah, i mean and i'm not a very sort of mystical person. Then why I- are you wearing those crystals Valerie? <laughs> <laughs> She's great. She's nine. She's nine. <laughs> <laughs> so I so I you know I, I never for once felt the house, house was haunted and I didn't have these these real feel, feelings of actual fear it was just a more kind of unsettled feeling about this home that we had just sunk a lot of money into and so just on a personal level I wanted to understand what had happened and then because I was a writer I was you know just kicking this around as a good story and um I think you know I was very intimidated at first to try and write the story because the the family. Um, who lived there when the crime happened is an African-American family. And I just felt like I, I wanted to tell their story, but I didn't know if I, you know, as a, as a white American had had the right or could. It just seemed very audacious to try to imagine how would I get inside the head of and speak in the voice of, of an African-American family um, convincingly. And so, and a
1: different era of time yes. in in the city before you had come to Ann Arbor yourself. Exactly, so a, whole, a different scope.
3: Yeah, exactly. They lived there during the, the mostly during the 1980s, um, and um, so I knew that I wanted to braid their story together with the story of uh, you know sort of alter egos of my husband and, and me, um, and and then I also kind of introduced a few other characters who also get woven through the plot line. And so, you know, I had to do a lot of research at first to try to just feel that I could own up to their story and do justice to their story and try to write um, the, the the man who committed the crime, Walker Price, to try to write his character's voice in a convincing way. And So what was that research then, Valerie? Because actually I was thinking of researching, you know,
1: the, the, the true crime about the actual, like, the records at the Ann Arbor Police
3: Department. Or, but But how did you do this research for Walker? Well, if some of it was researching crimes and, and and talking to um, attorneys who who um, knew a lot of, a lot more than I did about sentencing laws at that time, so that I would understand sort of what kind of sentence he would get, where he would end up, and things like that um, and then I did a lot of of um, research of just reading prison memoirs, um, the writings of prisoners and recent ex-cons, mainly because this character lived for 18 years and then spent the, sec- the next 18 years of his life in prison. Um, and- That's
1: true. And we should say that the time that we spend with this character is when he comes out of prison. So it's not any of the, the other story, really. That- exactly. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Some of his family history gets sort of filtered into the novel, but his but the present action of the novel mostly takes place once this young couple buy the house and then then he gets out of prison and those those events sort of coincide. He begins lurking around the home. He's trying to rebuild his uh, his life, but his family is afraid of him and his his family has been destroyed by this event. They lost the home because of his crime and he feels very responsible, but he also isn't quite, quite willing to admit to himself or to them that what he did was wrong. He feels that he was justified. and um, And so I really, you know, I thought when I first started writing the book, I sort of imagined that maybe he would be still very dangerous and he may be dangerous in certain ways but um the more that I wrote his character the more that I just kind of came to really love him and I kind of really fell in on his side um and um I think he has a lot in common with with the main character the the sort of my alter ego and and I just um he's a man who's just searching for some dignity as we as we all do and and I think that you know to him this home was everything and he took a lot of pride in it and um it's very hard for him now to to see this young couple kind of tearing everything out of the home as they try to remodel it. This this is whole that's what's left of his family history is in that home, and and this new couple are just sort of ripping it out and throwing it in a dumpster. And you know, it, that's very They're Just upsetting. discarding it, yeah, know. yeah.
1: And and so so basically, see if I'm understanding this correctly, Valerie. With with the um, when you were looking at the the actual the history. Of this story, um, you 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 looked at the facts, but kind of pulled down like th- sort of the the shade at some point and said, "Just imagination, go forward. This isn't um, you know a documentary of of something that well, because obviously the house didn't. Uh, well, I don't want to <laughs> do a spoiler there. Let me see. Hmm, maybe I won't say that. Um, but uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is I I still don't understand what, at what point did the alter ego you meet up with these uh,
3: characters you imagined because the the person who committed the crime wasn't named Walker for example right 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 no i mean very early on i knew that that everything that i was writing was fiction and so i was curious about the truth but only to the extent that it would serve a good story and so you know i i, I well, well said <laughs> um i tried to just to just let me, to, to tell a good story and, and to use the research as a means of getting the right voice and, and making things plausible, but not necessarily as a means of getting at the actual truth. And in fact, I resisted um, act, doing the final actual research of of sort of exactly what happened on the crime scene um, until after the book was completely finished because I, I felt that this family had um, suffered enough and I didn't want to really, truly steal their story. The only story of theirs that I stole was what my neighbors told me. I stole the rumor. And then from that, um, did enough research to build a plausible situation and wrote that situation, which was made up. So there I've, I've spoiled it. No,
1: (laughs) (laughs) no, no, you haven't at all. No, no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. That's, and that's what I was wondering if that's what, what you had done, how you had created this, um, this story. Um, and so how do you feel when people are talking about it? As if it's a ghost story, yeah, I have to say that makes me uncomfortable.
3: <laughs> um, I mean, I think that I, Charlie I can under- Baxter. No, I, I love what Ch- <laughs> I love what Charles Baxter wrote, but, but you know it, it's um, it's beautiful, and I'm, I'm so thrilled. He wrote something like, um,
1: "Let's see on on the cover, sure. he he says a perfectly plausible and rational
3: ghost story, sexy, sharp eyed, and deeply haunted." So that I love, you know, when he wrote me that, I, I flipped. I think that's fantastic, and I was so charmed and and honored. Um, and I think that's true. I think it is what he said. But what you know, the trouble is when people don't see perfectly plausible and rational in front of ghost story, and they just say, "Oh, a ghost story. Um, it's not a ghost story." Unless in the fact that every one of us is haunted. Yeah, exactly. That's the idea that this home is haunted in in a in a plausible, rational way, in the sense that you know this new couple moves in and and they become haunted by the truth of what has happened there the history of what has happened there but there are no ghosts running around and i think that that's exactly what charlie captured so i was thrilled to see him write that um you know but it's it, i i i struggled with this because of course it's a story that um is set in a scary house and involves a murder so you know the two things that i always had to say before i you know described the book to anyone was were it's not a mystery and it's not a ghost story, but um, it has elements of both. It has elements of what it feels like to live in a space that, that scares you a little um, and elements of, well, not so much who done it. We know very early on who did the crime, but we don't know why he did it. And we don't know um, you know what the circumstances of the event were. And so there, there are certainly... So there's an
1: unraveling in that sense. There's that mystery is coming, is being unraveled.
3: Yeah. The mystery of character, really
1: because it seems like you're driving at more human elements.
3: I hope so. I try to.
1: Well, well that so how did how did you um let's see, in the New York Times book review because didn't, didn't they review it under the, the mystery banner as well? Yeah. So yeah. so did you call up and say,
3: no. <laughs>
1: nice job.
3: <laughs> it was a beautiful review, you know, and, and, and they said wonderful things that I was just so honored to hear. And um,
1: and the drawing that they did, I, know, I saw they... on your website that was pretty important. Can yeah, you describe that for us?
3: <laughs> <laughs> they put a like a drawing up of, of me sort of as if I were in, in a on a on a crime scene on a lineup, what do they call it when you're when you're being identified by the? It's always like there's that front shot and then the side view, yeah, right? It's like a mug shot. A mug shot, yeah. Uh, and so, you <laughs> know, what how many... a great use for an author photo? <laughs> I know how many people get to say they've got their mug shot in the New York Times. I feel like Nick Nolte or Winona Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> Star Valerie Lake and (laughs) is joining us today on Living Writers. Um, So, but no, I didn't mind at all. I mean, it was a lovely review. I mean, it's a little awkward to find yourself pushed into a genre that you didn't anticipate. Um, have and, you been meeting with any mystery groups? Because I saw on your coming tour where you'll go out to the West Coast, yeah. there's even some, you know, mystery and more. Like yeah, one shop. of the stores is, yeah, um, and I don't mind at all, you know, and I think I have heard you know, really nice responses from readers who say, who say you know, I picked it up for this reason and then actually turned out and, and I loved it for a different reason. So I'm happy to you know, to, to it, I think the book can appeal to a wide swath of readers and, and that was something that I consciously set out to do early on because I, I I didn't want this just to be a story about oh a suburban woman buys a home and you know gets her dreams thwarted. I wanted it to have you know some of that story <laughs> and some of the of the you know the 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 crime and some of the uh, the family that had lived there in the 80s. I wanted it to be a blend of several different kinds of stories and really different kinds of characters.
1: With the research, Valerie, I was just wondering, because of thinking about the, the scope of the writing of the book, too, did did um, how were you able to sort of um, kind of beat that down at a certain point? Or was that unnecessary? Because I'm kind of thinking there's, maybe with research, it would be kind of exciting one thing leading to another, especially, especially in the realm of, um, like, true crime or... Um, I don't know. I hope I don't sound too bloodthirsty, but this idea of like, maybe it isn't something that you're familiar with. And so this whole new world is opening up before you. Um, Just like if you work in a restaurant, suddenly you're, you're, you're um, privileged to see this whole community, like how a hierarchy of things like, so if walking to an, into a police department, I'd imagine is, is similar. Um, So how were you able to say, okay, enough with the research. I'm just going to enter into the the
3: characters. I don't know. You know, it's, it's, a little like it's a little like childbirth you know I think you black out how it happened after and you're just glad it's over with <laughs> that's
1: true I mean I could see I could see how that might be great okay um, you know then I'm going to let that go we'll just let the the research part go you're listening to Living Writers today on the show we've got Valerie Lakin and her book Dreamhouse um, it's WCBN FM Ann Arbor I'm T Hetzel we'll be back You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Valerie Lakin is here. If you're just joining us, it's been great, and I'm glad you're you're tuning in. Um, Valerie, thanks for being here. Thanks for, for having me. Driving from Wisconsin, you're just off, off the pavements. Yeah, I just drove thanks. right in.
3: <laughs> and you're in town for Book Fest, aren't you, which is this weekend? It is. I'm um, on a panel this Saturday at 3 o'clock with um, Colson Whitehead and Steve Amick. And uh, Keith Taylor is the moderator, so it's a it's a panel on place in fiction, I think at three o'clock in the Kalamazoo room of the Michigan League. Oh, that'll be great that What
1: a great panel. I mean, Steve Amick he's friend of the show. Keith Taylor, friend of the show. Colson Whitehead soon to be because yes. he's going to be oh, on later. King? yes yeah. oh, that's
3: fantastic. I love um, his
1: work. And, you know, I'm sure you loves yours too, Valerie, <laughs> so I'll just say that, you know, I love yours. Um, and we, earlier in the program, if you're just joining us, Amanda Uly, uh from 826 Michigan was here. And tomorrow, Dave Edgers is going to be in town at the Michigan Theater um, for a benefit for 826 Michigan, which if you don't know about it, it's just a great place. Um, kids from, um, you know, we tots to... You know, not kids, high schoolers. You have people, you know, young writers, go there to write. Um, and so, uh, they're they're throwing a benefit tomorrow at Michigan Theater with the movie Away We Go, which uh, Dave Eggers and his wife Fendi La Vida, uh co-wrote, and uh, Dave Eggers will be. Uh, doing a Q&A afterwards. So we've got three pairs of tickets, and Alex Bell-Hodge is here on the phones. So if you would like a pair of tickets to go see Away We Go, um, give us a call, the number 734-763-3500. Um, 734-763-3500. All right, so now on with the program. Without further ado, um, so Valerie, Will you read um, a bit from Dream House for us?
3: Sure. I'll just read um, the first couple pages, maybe. Sounds Um, great. uh, This is is from the prologue to the book, and it's uh, set in July of 1987. If you took away the police tape and the squad cars and the neighbors murmuring in a cluster on the sidewalk, it would look like the kind of house little kids draw, a wooden two-story box topped with the steep triangle of a full attic and a chimney tilting slightly from the ridgeline of the roof. The blistered paint was the gray-blue of dishwater, and there were no dormers or bay windows or Victorian details, just that blunt workman's box and triangle, fronted by a wooden porch that sagged toward the street. Some kids might scribble coils of of smoke above the chimney or plant flowers near the windows, but these windows were bare and dusty, reflectionless, and the chimney was quiet. It was ninety degrees and humid even at twilight. Jay opened the door of his work van to let in more air. The house was only eight eight blocks away from his one-room apartment over in Ann Arbor's student ghettos, which meant he had probably gone past the place lots of times without noticing it. These old clabbered houses all looked alike, crowded on their lots in orderly rows, but now this one, cordoned off, had gone and distinguished itself. The neighbors on the sidewalk glanced up at Jay's open door, at his foot kicked out on the running board. He adjusted his side mirror to take them in. Always the rubberneckers. They crowded around every job site, outraged that catastrophe dared strike so close to home in a house so like theirs. Tonight, it was an old white guy with a collie, two obese women squinting and gasping, and a bony, bug-eyed black girl who kept crumpling over into tears. What they wanted to know was how he was connected to the house, and whether, unlike the police or the ambulance guys, he would tell them about the murder. That
1: sounds... Thank you. Thank <sighs> you. <laughs> I love the part about the coils of smoke coming up from the chimney. Oh. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. Uh, so, um, Valerie, with um, uh, thinking a little bit about your your life as a writer, <laughs> I feel like we should have some heavy theme music that sure tell us about <laughs> your first story <laughs> no really can you remember it no um, do, you, do, I remember my do first you have a story? moment
3: when you thought i am a writer or um i don't know if i had a moment when i thought i was a writer i remember the first story that i tried to write seriously that i actually finished i was probably 25 and it was about it was a date in which two people go on the Mississippi River and float down the river on a boat and talk it was the worst story ever it had no plot no conflict Um, it was all conversation it was like a I don't know it was like a
1: Was it your Samuel Beckett tribute or
3: something? (laughs) I wish. I wish I'd had the wherewithal to to try and do a tribute to Samuel Samuel Beckett. No, it was just bad. It was just bad. But, you know... But you finished it. I did. And I think that, you know, that was the difference for me was that um, for a long... You know, all my life growing up, I loved to write, but I came from a family that was, you know, more or less just a sort of had the mentality of a working class family, you know, you just work hard, you do your ordinary stuff in your ordinary life. And, um, you know, that we didn't keep books in the house, there weren't really, my parents weren't readers. Um, I did have one sister who was a big reader and kind of turned me on to books. And that was very important. But, uh, you know, it just seemed ridiculous, this notion that anybody normal from Rockford, Illinois could become a writer, that seemed like a very pompous goal. And so, I, you know, I always was playing with words and, and writing things secretly in journals and in notebooks, but I never showed them to anybody and I didn't take classes or do things like that until... Um, I went to the University of Iowa as an undergrad in, you know, for college, and I partially I know now that, that I was drawn there because of the writer's workshop. I mean, I, at the time, I knew they had this famous workshop, but while I was there, I was too shy and intimidated to go anywhere near it. You know, I was just, I took one or two very introductory writing classes, but they, I just was way too scared by the whole prospect.
1: But subconsciously, maybe that's I'm why sure. you chose that university. No, I know university. I did.
3: Yeah, I know I did. Um, but, this is like pull out the couch. Thing. Oh, I know. Exactly. This is cheap. <laughs> than therapy. <laughs> so, you know, so I was always tinkering with things, but I never finished anything. And I think that that's the difference, that when you can start to really finish stories or poems or novels, whatever it is that you want to be writing, then you're really a writer. And until then, you're, you're kind of tinkering. You're kind of like that guy at the party who can play the first bi- five bars of any song and can't play anything else. <laughs> that was me.
1: <laughs> but, and so, so. but at,
3: at 25, you had this
1: moment where you wrote this river story. hmm and it actually finished, and it did it have that sort of that rhythm where it and it kind of finished up on twenty two pages or so did it have
3: sort of that feel of, it, in uh, my mind, I'm sure it did, but i'm i if I saw it now, I'd be horrified um and, but no, and then I started to um i i I was living in Ann arbor then maybe i was twenty six or so, and i was this before or after Moscow this was after Moscow, yeah, so. Okay. Um, there was a gap in there when I lived abroad. We can come back to that. I don't know. But so I, once I was back in Ann Arbor um, and I and I was just sort of going by a coffee shop and saw this sign that said, you know, do you want to learn how to write? And I said, yes, I do. And so I signed up for this sort of private workshop that a writer named Josh Henkin was teaching at that time. And he was a graduate of the Michigan uh, MFA program. And I started taking these workshops with him, and they were wonderful, and I met all sorts of really great writers who I'm still friends with now. Nick Arvin is one of them, um, Amy Walsh, Mary Jean Babich, um, Babich, um, and uh, Don Lystra. Lots of great people went through the program. Or his little little mini program, I guess I should call it, and then some of us went on to um, do MFAs elsewhere. So, so
1: the MFA didn't bring you to Ann Arbor. You were, you were you found your way here.
3: Yeah, I had already come to Ann Arbor um, to do. I had planned on doing a PhD in Slavic literature, in Russian and Polish literature. That's what you had your masters in then. Uh, yeah, well, I, I came here to do the masters. I I had um, So here I guess okay. we should rewind a little bit. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so you know when I was an undergraduate, because I was too afraid to be a creative writing person. And I uh, majored in Russian and in English. And then when I graduated, I had no idea what kind of job I could ever get with those majors, and I was not one of those really put-together kind of graduates. So I um, went to Russia, <laughs> and I um, I started working as a translator in Moscow for a couple of years. Well, that sounds very put-together to It me. does, but I, it was all by accident. I just stumbled into one thing after another, and it was really, really fun. This was during the early 90s when, um, you know— um, Gorbachev was falling out of power. They had the the coup in the summer that I first got there, and um, Yeltsin. coups are always fun. They're always fun. My mom didn't think it was very fun. She was glad that I was I was actually not in Moscow during the coup, and she was really glad about that. But, but you were really alive. Right? I, it felt like it. Yeah, it was really, as they say on the SNL spoof of public radio, it was good times. <laughs> um. So you know. So I had. I think that. Um, So I lived in in Moscow for uh, about a couple years, and then I lived in uh, Eastern Europe after that, in Prague and in Krakow. And um, I knew all that time that I really liked working with language, and I was too afraid to say that I wanted to write. So so I just did whatever else I could do with language. Were you keeping
1: journals, though? Were you doing lots of... Yeah,
3: that, that type of writing and so he had seen... I was but I was just not very you know not very dedicated you know I would just write a few things and then I would do something else <laughs> it was... go for a pint I or... just didn't know how to write I really didn't know what is what made something a story I didn't understand anything about plot or character development I just didn't understand any of that I just really liked language
1: and you it seems though um that you may have delved into if with Russian literature uh, deconstructing m- many famous stories or, or, yeah. and so in having a love of that. Is, is that true? Is that something that informs how you're writing short stories and then maybe Dreamhouse as well?
3: Um, I'm sure that, that studying Russian literature and, and some of Polish literature definitely helped. Um, and just being forced in grad school to read so much, it just, you know, you, you, at some point you do start to discover patterns and you start to realize, oh, scratch my head, there's a plot here and here's what makes something work as a story. Here's what increases tension in the reader's mind and here's what makes them read forward or what doesn't, you know. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I definitely um, fell in love with with all of the Russian authors, but especially, you know, people like Gogol and um, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Chekhov is a big writer for me, and Babel, and um, among the Polish writers that I really love, I mean, I I really love um, Gombrowicz is a very funny writer, and um, Bruno Schultz is one of my all-time favorite short story writers. He's a writer that not enough people read, um, but he's a beautiful, beautiful short story writer. Um, So I felt really lucky that I got to have that kind of sort of literary education um, before I started really studying how to write. I was studying literature for a long time. But, you know, along the way, I realized that... um, while I was taking these workshops, I was trying to do my Russian literature PhD and I started to realize that I was having a lot more fun writing stories than I was, you know, having fun reading about stories. What
1: you were doing with Josh Henkin. Exactly.
3: uh, Yeah. And and so those workshops just really opened my eyes to... Um, something that I realized I wanted to do. And I I felt like even if I can't succeed at this, I want to dedicate myself to trying to write. And so gradually I I dropped out of the Ph.D. program in Russian literature and switched over to the MFA program in creative writing. And uh, people often asked me, you know, oh, do you regret that? Oh, do you regret you? You know, I I was ABD. I, I went really far into the program. And, uh, oh, what does ABD? Oh, sorry, mean? ABD means everything or all but dissertation. Oh, oh. So that makes I had done sense. all my coursework, all my exams, <laughs> everything. All I had to do was write, you know, two hundred page thesis, which sounds like torture to me. It was really a lot. It was a lot more than I could do. <laughs> um, yeah, they're just geniuses in that in that program. They're so smart, and I just felt like I, it wasn't for me.
1: Well, well. Thank goodness, because we've yeah. got Dream House, then.
3: <laughs> and and uh,
1: and we'll we're going to take a short break, okay. and we'll be back. Uh, you've been listening uh, to Valerie Lakin and and her book Dream House. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be back. Trucks in at dawn, and join us for Living Writers <laughs> today. Valerie Lakin and Dream House, her debut novel, um, and just another quick mention. I think we have we have one pair of tickets left. So if you're listening and uh, and you have an open a spot on your dance card tomorrow um we've got a pair of tickets uh courtesy of 826 michigan and amanda uly um for their benefit tomorrow away we go is the film and dave edgers um the writer will be there um so the number 734-763-3500 and now back to valerie (laughs) um so valerie um Alice Munro has said, a story is not like a road to follow. It's more like a house. Yeah. And, and so that seems like something that, that you said that you, you really believe in.
3: I really believe that. Um, I think it's such a smart thing. Uh, what's interesting to me is that just before that quote, she actually says,